Can you hear me all the way in the back now? <laughs> Sorry, I just I heard there was some uh, people who said they couldn't hear me last time. <laughs> it's actually rather strange to me. It's one of the first times ever I've heard my people say, Hey, Daniel, speak up. <laughs> ever since I was a teenager, people have been telling me, Daniel, tone it down. Your voice is going through the wall. <laughs> but is this volume satisfactory now? Yes. All right. Thank you. All right. So, here we are again, by the grace of God. Amen. And let's see. Looking today, we're actually finishing up uh, the second part of what we started last week, looking at the false trinity. So last time we took a look when Satan was bringing in the Antichrist, his false messiah, and we're going to now see he'll bring in his, the third member of his, trin- of his uh, little tri- trinity of evil, the false prophet. <sighs> So we're going through, we'll bounce down through several different reference verses, but the main text we'll be going through will be the rest of chapter 13. So when, if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Revelation chapter 13, and we'll be going through verses 11 through 18, the end of the chapter. You go ahead and stand when you get there, and we'll read the word together. Good? All right, here we go. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 13, Revelation. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a lion, like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Let's pray. Dear God, just thank you once more that we can come together in the sight of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you've drawn us together by the power of your name and the love that you've shown us when you died on the cross and rose again. I pray, Lord, that as we continue to fellowship and to learn, to read from your word, to to worship in your house, Lord, that I pray that you just would be working in and through us, Lord, that you'd be molding us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray that as I speak today, your Spirit would fill me, that your words of my mouth would be, as I say, in the meditations of my heart, may they be acceptable and glorifying to you, O Lord. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Alrighty, so 
As we saw last time, we saw this has been the, when the ultimate evil acts are being fulfilled in the book of Revelation. Satan is being given full reign to exercise his will on the earth, but let's keep in mind that's not going to last forever. Satan knows it, and we know it too. But when they say the, dark, like the, the light is darkest before the dawn, and Satan is going to take full advantage of the darkness of these future days. But keep in mind that, that, of course, that this is God's will. His judgment is being brought on the earth because people have, re- have rejected him. And like I say, quote, I remember like, the saying that I, for a book I read before, like long ago was a, being called an undecided decided. Someone who basically is, they, they, even if they're just wavering between what God, what, what God wants and what Satan is tempting them to be, if they haven't, re- if they haven't chosen the light, they've automatically accepted the darkness. There is no in-between with that. So even people who are who might who might be willing might be possibly th- thinking about going to God if they haven't made that choice, that is what ultimately counts in eternity, unfortunately. So looking at what we saw today, we saw last time Satan is tre- creating a worldwide political order through the Antichrist. We saw that with it was like a revived Roman Empire. Drawing back from the vision of Daniel, we saw. The Antichrist is represented as a leopard with the feet of a bear and the mouth like, mouth like a lion, representing the revival of the Roman Empire, having absorbed the Babylonian, Persian, and Greek kingdoms into itself. And now, this week, we're going to see the other side of what Satan's plan is. Having made himself as the false God the Father, he's made the Antichrist his false Messiah, God the Son, so to speak, and now we're going to see another human agent that will work as part of Satan's plan. The Bible refers to him later on in, in Revelation as the false prophet. And, he, and Satan will use him to draw humanity into, world, into universal false worship. Okay, so the first point we're looking at is in Revelation, verses 11 and 12, what we just read. And that this... This idea is that as the false prop, as the prophets of old, and as, as those who exercise the gift of prophecy today, were are serving the message of Christ. We're going to see the false prophet; his his actions will serve the false message of Satan. So, with the first thing we're going to see about this, that this, uh, aha, first thing about the description of this figure, he's in verses eleven and twelve. Is there any hear me? Good. Just checking in and make sure the volume is set right. Okay, good. All right, so it says, in verses 11 and 12, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So, in the sense, like we looked at the last time, that deadly wound was supposedly the Antichrist having a very close brush with death, perhaps even seemingly to be killed, but then Satan works a false resurrection and brings him back. Or rather, he's allowed... Actually, that's a misnomer because Satan, as they say, comes to seek, kill, and destroy. He cannot give life, but either God will allow Satan will allow the Antichrist to, be, to return, or Satan will somehow be able to possess the Antichrist and make it look like he returned when he really didn't. But that's beside the point. Like this, at this point, this time, pardon me. I'm not discounting the importance of it. Just saying, we'll have something for another time. So, 
the thing, first thing we see is the description of this of this beast. He says he has two. He is actually interesting. In different ways, he resembles both the other figures of the false trinity. He says he is a he is a beast. He's coming up out of the earth this time, unlike the antichrist and other beasts we've seen, like from the book of Daniel, who came up out of the sea. This is going to be something different about this one. So some people, in, when they look at this, they say that the sea represents, as they said last time, we get peoples, tongues, nations, kingdoms, a place where there's a lot of people, whereas coming up out of the earth, that's supposedly where there's very few people, a very sparsely populated area. <coughs> but the interesting part about this is that his, his physical description says he has horns, like the beast of the sea, uh, came out of the sea, the Antichrist, and he has a voice, his words would be like those of a dragon, like Satan. So in this case, he's, like, say he's a very, he's like we see, this Jesus represents, the, reflects the nature of the Father. The Holy Spirit represent, the, will, will basically have similarities to and will serve both the other members of the Trinity in his own way. And this Antichrist will counterfeit, and this, probably the false prophet will counterfeit that. As I was studying, there was an interesting kind of couple of figures that came to mind. In a previous, call it a, I don't know what to call it, it's like a spiritual conspiracy video, a conspiracy theory. Some people point to the American buffalo, the bison, as being a possible a beast that maybe John saw. Um, like it looks like something like a lamb. It has like the big, like it's a big beast, but it's got curly hair, kind of like a lamb's wool. But notice it has two horns. That's what simply will point to. Another one that kind of made a little more sense to me came to mind later. How many of you are familiar with the with the name Baphomet? Okay, good. Yeah, okay. So a few of you. So for those who are not in on the know, Baphomet is the weird is the very strange goat-headed figure that is often seen as a representative of Satan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's notice he is, he, again, he has something, has some similarity to like a sheep or a, or, or a goat, but he, and he has two horns, but, he will, but his words will very much reflect those of Satan. <coughs> but however, this, whatever his physical description, what's, true, what's truly important is what is the nature of being the false prophet. So, looking back at what we saw in previous, uh, previous in the Old Testament, we've seen what, is, what, what it means to be a false prophet. Well, a prophet is usually someone who is sent as a messenger from God, but as a human instead of an angel. I mean, the angels don't represent the prophets, in a sense, it's the same way that Isaiah and Daniel and all the other prophets did in the Old Testament. But to be, to, to, so that's, it's a human, it's going to be, so we know this, this figure coming up from the earth, it would be a human figure, but what does it mean to be a false prophet? Well, as we've seen in other examples, like in the days of, like in the, in the days of Elijah, there was like when Ahab was about to go out to Ramoth Gilead to fight the, fight against the Syrians, he's asked what his, yes, his, uh, call it his, his yes men to what, what he should do. They said, go fight, the Lord will give you victory. The true prophet of the Lord comes in and says, these guys are all, <laughs> these are all just little weasels who are telling you what you want to hear. God's got co- trouble cooked up for you. And another one, and one of them, who's a leader of the false prophets, said, snaps on the mouth, said, how, what, how did God choose, how, how did you choose to, basically he says, ah, kind of backtracking, he snaps on the mouth, says, how did, how did, what, what made you think God spoke to you instead of me? He says, 
Yeah, when you when you're carrying an upper room, then you'll know who was really the telling the truth. But that's the idea of being a false prophet. That you cl- you claim to speak divine words, but the Lord has not sent you. So that's exactly what this false prophet would be. You claim to be a divine figure, but his power and his words do not come from God. In fact, it's not even his power. Like as we've seen before, like we saw the, the I made reference last week to the witch's invitation song of Carmen. It's you know, the humans who claim to exercise power in the name of Satan. They're just puppets, and they and sometimes they don't even realize that they're that they're not even that they're not powerful. They realize that they're not. They don't realize they're just pawns. But whether you know you're a pawn or not, how you're used is what counts in the eternal sense. Okay, so then looking at this, uh, ah, what's, the other big point, point that's pointed out here is that this figure or national leader, whether it's leader of a nation or leader of a religion, they will, this, this being will enforce the rule and the worship of the Antichrist. As we saw last week, the abomination of desolation is the most evil act that a human can, can, can commit will be done by the Antichrist. He will sit in God's temple and claim to be God and be worshipped as such. And this false prophet will help him do that. So again, looking back to the model of the false, of the false trinity, the Holy Spirit reinforces the rule and worship of Jesus Christ. And with the false prophet... Satan will pull the ultimate counterfeit. And the sad part is, people will fall for it by the, by the millions. So I was thinking back to... Pardon me if I'm moving a little too fast. I was thinking back to what I shared last week when I said, looking at the, looking at how the figure of Tash from Narnia and how he represents the opposite, the, the absence of everything Aslan is. Well, there's actually... Like we saw like the, the ape shift in the story. He's an Arnie and a talking beast who will facilitate this lie for his own sake of power. And even when he's not in the forefront anymore, his allies will continue that. They'll start by saying, as I said last week, they'll try to deceive people saying that Aslan and Tash are one. In other words, it would be like saying that Jesus and Satan are just two sides of the same coin. They're actually just two, two, the same person with two different sides. And that's a lie that's been propagated in the world. Like, like I remember Robin Williams once said, like, what if there's no devil? What if it's just God when he's drunk? That's, and I, I love Robin Williams' humor, but that was, I, I couldn't believe that he could, I couldn't believe it when I heard, like, this man who had been so humorous speak such a, such a desecration of God's character. And yet that's exactly what others in the world are doing, and it's what, in the future, we see what the Antichrist and the false prophet will do. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us. I mean, like the whole saying about, is nothing sacred, as I brought up last week, to Satan? No, nothing is. Especially not God's character, since that's exactly what Satan's rebelling against. Okay, so going back to the Narnia reference, they will try to persuade people to follow the devil, in a sense, follow Tash, by saying Aslan and Tasha won, so therefore they go from worshiping Aslan, they actually mix it together to form Tashlan, and by the end of the story, they're actually chanting praise to Tash himself. 
And that's exactly the path that they say the world will follow. They'll try to build, oh, even today, like you see with, with I believe it's called the philosophy or the r- movement called, uni- was it universal, unit- or, you know, unitarianism? Mm-hmm. Where they're basically trying to say, trying to form, oh, basically exactly that, a mixture of all world religions and putting them under one banner. And that's exactly, and then that will eventually, we'll see that's, will come about later on in chapters, I think, 17 and 18. They look at Babylon the Great, and that's, as, she, as this religion tries to ride the coattails of the Antichrist, we'll see that the woman riding the beast later on. But that will ultimately be overthrown and replaced with worship of the Antichrist, pure and simple. Okay, moving on into the next portion. Looking at Revelation 13, verses 13 through 15. To the next point, looking at... Okay, here we go. Starting verse 13. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he is granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast the two who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Well, that kind of... That, at first I was thinking, thinking of, like, what is going on here? And then God brought to mind some of the things that happened in the Old Testament that he has done, that have been done before, and as Solomon said... It clicked. Nothing new under the sun. Okay, so interestingly, as we saw, as I kind of looked at last week, as the Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity that acts as the Father inspires and the Son speaks, so the, the false prophet will be granted the power, demonic power, over nature and objects. So looking back to what we saw, this is, like I said, there's nothing new under the, there's nothing new to us. We look back at Look back, back, back at the Old Testament. There's instances like uh, Exodus, for instance, or First Kings. This is exactly what we see that done before. Satan tries to create a counterfeit of what God has done. For example, turning back to Exodus, that'll be in chapter nine, verses twenty-two through twenty-five. Turning there now. Ah, here we are. So Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field, throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt, so there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt, since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. So that's one reference we see, like, God sending, and most God working through his prophet, calls down fire from heaven. The Antichrist, will, the Antichrist, through the false prophet, will try to counterfeit that. Okay. And then again, going to the book of 
First Kings, chapter 18, turning there now. So chapter 18 of 1 Kings, in verse 20. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, Not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. Jumping down to verse 36 of that chapter. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Sound familiar? Mm. And that is, they say that, so interestingly, those are, the, those are the actions that were spoken and done through Moses, arguably say, they say the greatest of the prophets, and through Elijah, they say this, some would say the second greatest. After all, we saw these two figures in the, on the Mount of, Trans, Mount of Mount Hermon, I believe, the Mount, and the, during the Transfiguration. These are the exact two prophetic figures that came and spoke to Jesus when he was glorified in the presence of his three apostles. And this is exactly the same kind of miracles that Satan will counterfeit through his servant, the false prophet, calling down fire from heaven, trying to persuade people that he is God. And interestingly enough, it says, quote, the Antichrist will, worship, will be worshipped through an image. I mean, how often have we seen people, when people have been adored or venerated or any kind of attention given to them, is it always done in person? No, humans can only be in one place at one time. So how do we remember people and how do we lift them up and give them our, our attention? Well, through their images. It can be through the social media, through like, like blogs or tweets. It can be through their photographs or posters, even videos that have their image in front of us. And while this is something relatively new to us, I mean, ever since the, since the, since the social media portion is new to us, ever since pretty much the 80s, when we saw the internet come in, this act of worshiping people through an image, <laughs> again, an old trick that's been around for, for who knows how long. 
And this is exactly what we'll see the Antichrist will be doing through the false prophet. He will try to convince people he's God, and the false prophet will lift him up as through an image. But this is not, not, not like images we've seen before. This is a much more tangible image than a, than a picture or a video. It says that it's going to be an image of the beast, and it will actually speak and act almost of its, almost of its own accord, like a puppet, or perhaps someday, something like a robot. I mean, they've come a long way with robotics. They're actually trying to, they're trying to make like artificial intelligence now, and making like, robots more interactive. So who knows? Perhaps that will be the way that the Antichrist's image will be, will be made for. Ah, but it also points out that those who refuse to worship will be punished by the false prophet and or by the image that is projected here. It reminded me when I was studying a very, another similar happening happening in the days of my namesake. We saw, saw this again. Like, it comes as no surprise. We see a lot of ties to the book of Daniel in this. Like God has purposely tied a lot of, the, lot of Daniel's visions and his words into the, what he's speaking through the Apostle John. The image that came to mind, or the account that came to mind, I should say, comes from Daniel chapter 3, a very famous story that we've yet seen told in both in church and in, in, among the children's ministry. The, the instance of the fiery furnace. So we see, remember we saw it as, the, as, Dan, as, as Daniel's vision later on in the chapter and as John's revelation through Christ was shown, there's going to be different kingdoms come to rise. And we'll see one of them, as we saw the Nebuchadnezzar's statue, statue vision, or his dream of the statue, that will reflect Daniel's vision. See, but Nebuchadnezzar tries, like most potentates, to say that, oh, I'm here, my kingdom is forever, it's not going to end. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, yeah, she knows what I'm talking about. He, uh, right? Okay, so, go here to Nebuchadnezzar, so here in Daniel chapter 3, this we see the king of Babylon, once again, a slow learner, have to go through another, another persuasion from God to give up, what he, give up his worldly ways. So starting in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, administrators, the governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the other officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Here's the key portion here. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Again, nothing new. That See, the... So nothing new. We see that the, the worldly worship has been set up, and anyone who does not bow down, you're going to burn. 
So it comes as no surprise to us that the Antichrist and the false prophet, with Satan as their master, will do the same old thing. I mean, that's, I mean, those who often will stand against this worship, this false worship, will be those who stand for the truth. And the best way for Satan to spread his lie? Stamp out those who speak the truth. And it's no comes as a surprise that there's music aligned with this, because after all, as some have have some have proclaimed or have studied, Satan as Lucifer, the original angel before he fell, was an angel of worship. We've seen it's come, it's, it's, it's the angels have come in with different roles. Gabriel, the, like, who Daniel also spoke to, was a messenger. God sent him to speak His word. Michael. The archangel who, come up, who comes up in different portions of scripture, he is a warrior. He fights on the, by God's command. And so Satan, as Lucifer, was an angel who led worship. So he was familiar with music, who had been with the spoken word, with the act of falling down before God's throne. And now as Satan, he does exactly the opposite. He lifts himself up to be worshipped. He tries to cast others before him to bow down and worship. And therefore, should be, again, no surprise, I know I keep saying it, but it comes no surprise that Satan's followers will practice exactly what the Satan does. As Jesus confronted the Pharisees, saying, like, you are the same as your father, you're the devil, he is the father of all lies. Okay, then we'll move on to the third portion. We look at chapter, the Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 through 18, the end of the chapter. We'll see the false prophet who will be serve as a tool for Satan to claim ownership over everyone on earth. Okay, we're looking at verse 16. We're speaking of the false prophet. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who, who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. All right, so just to absorb that, see the interesting thing, we see everyone is supposed to have giving a mark. So what kind of mark do you think this, what kind of mark will this be? Well, we don't really know. It doesn't say except the mark, but we can extrapolate from what we do know what it might be. For example, like say, like the people who put a mark on someone, like we saw like back in the day, the mark of Cain that God put put on him. This could be either either a physical a physical sign, almost like perhaps even something like a like a brand or a tattoo. I mean, they say that back in the day, that's been used on on animals and sometimes even with people. They say that when when you put a mark on somebody. That tattoo or brand is a sign of either their membership in a group or, as they say, as they say quote, it's a sign of ownership. Quote, I, I, did, I did this for you. I own you. And so that's interesting to see. So that's interesting, like, from like, the ancient days onward, humanity has used that same practice that whenever you want to belong to somebody or when you want to belong with someone, you put a mark on them. And so some people have extrapolated, well, how do we get to do that? 
in the new in the new age, people I mean, well, tattoos that we've seen are still very popular. Even like the, even the press-ons, people still put tattoos on themselves today. An interesting way that they're trying to do it nowadays. I mean, a lot of people have pointed to computer chips being being put into people as like a tracking device. Well, same thing is being done with credit cards. We saw like the identify like the chips that allow you to to access your money. Well. If they put, how convenient would that be if you didn't have to use a card? What if you just put it in your hand, or if you just wanted to scan scan something with your head, like they do with the iris, like the like the retina scans? Why not just put that in your forehead? That way you don't have to have to do the eyes; just right there on the for- front of you. Well, unfortunately, that's going to be see. Unfortunately, that's going to be, as I said, a mark of ownership. So that even though you, if you don't, if you're not loyal to the one world government, the one world religion. Even today, like the government says, if you if, if we want to, if we don't like what you do, we can just cut off your flow of money. Mm-hmm. It's what's referred to as soft totalitarianism. Well, a lot of people, I saw a video from like Pegu University a while back asking if totalitarianism could ever dominate in the United States or a country like it. Well, they said there was two different flavors there. There was hard totalitarianism and soft totalitarianism. The hard stuff is what we saw back in the days of, like, of the world wars under some such groups like the fascists in Italy, the Nazis in Germany, the communists in Russia. That was hard totalitarianism. That'd be kind of a hard sell nowadays, I think. A lot of people say they... Some people are discussing more sympathies for like that kind of that total government, but those who haven't actually lived under it have not accepted it, have they? Like, but if... The, on, on the other hand, the soft totalitarianism, that's what can kind of lead into the hard stuff. The access thing, like I said, about the access, cutting off your access to money, like cutting off your social media access, in, sen- every, in that sense, making you, uh, in sense, making you an outcast, ostracizing you from, from the group, from society. That is soft totalitarianism. And so we see that very much happening in the world today. So can, total- can totalitarianism dominate in America? It's starting to. And that's exactly what will be used by Satan to establish his totalitarian system under the, under the Antichrist. Hmm. Interesting enough, though, this, again, this is a counterfeit of what God has done, we see in his time of grace, and through his people. This is like we look back to, like, again, to the, again, looking back to Exodus, to chapter 12 this time. This is a kind of, this, we see that God set up a mark to protect his people, to identify them as his, so that they would not be struck down in the judgment. So this is the, in chapter 12, this is the establishment, this is the, this has been the tenth plague of the ten plagues of Egypt is coming around. We've seen God start off at the, God start off at the beginning of the Egyptian pantheon, when Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should regard him? He's like, he's some desert God. Why should I listen to him? I'm the ruler of a powerful empire. God said, you want to know who I am? I'll show you. And so he starts off, at, in the, the Ten Plagues, he starts off at the bottom of the Egyptian pantheon, the least powerful Egyptian god, and through the nine plagues, the first nine, works his way all the way up to the top and says, quote, even, the, even Ra, the sun god that you worship, can't stop me. So who am I? I am more powerful than every, the most powerful god, Pharaoh, and if that doesn't convince you, here's one more instance. 
this is where we see establishing, so we see, we see here the establishment of the Jewish tradition that will actually lead up to, all the way to communion when Jesus institutes it in the Last Supper. Yeah, I know, I know, you're concerned, but it's, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay, I'll, I'll skip the part about, I'll skip, the, I'll skip the, the long part, I'll just give you the little highlight, okay? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, she's eager to hear, but like all kids, she's a little impatient. <laughs> so, going back to Egypt, to Exodus chapter 12, starting up in, well, this is the two verses, look at Exodus 12. Verses 12 and 13. This is when Moses, see, the institution of Passover over Israel. God gives the reason why. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I, shall, I will pass over you, and the plague will not be on you to, or to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So that's the, that's the institution of Passover. We see when they took the lamb, they were preparing it as a meal, but the first thing they did was drain its blood and then mark their doors, the, the size of the door, and on the, on the top of the door. And I think as is pointed out by others, I think Keefing notably, we saw in the Passover tradition, like we see, kind of like we see kinda like other parts of the Mosaic Law, that side-to-side action, like the wave offering, and the up-and-down action, like the heave offering. What, what image does that form? The cross, exactly. And that's what we and what, how did Jesus redeem us from sin? By shedding his blood on the cross. Exactly, and that's so that so the, the lambs who died in Passover and the bulls who were sacrificed on the altar, they're that exact image of what Jesus will do, on the, what, had, what he did later on on the cross. And that was the, and there's that we see the mark of Passover that God used to protect his people from the angel of death. And we'll see again this kind of idea of a mark that identifies God's people from the people of the world will be repeated again and again throughout Scripture. Next instance we'll look at, if you turn there with me, is in 1 Kings chapter 19. So previously in chapter 17, that was where we saw the, saw, we saw the God send drought on Israel for three years. In chapter 18, where we were previously, Elijah has his great confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And in the very next chapter, we see Elijah run for his life. Because Queen Jezebel, when she found out he killed over half of the prophets that he, she followed her, said, get ready, Elijah, because I'm coming for you, and your head's going to be the next one to roll. So what does he do? He gets out of there. Actually, he runs, runs to a place where he thinks they won't follow him, where nobody will, he thinks. He runs into the wilderness. And so he gets for God saying, quote, I'm the last prophet that's willing to stand against these people. Now they're kind of trying to kill me. Can you just take me now, God? But God strengthens him, brings him out to Mount Sinai, where he spoke to Moses. But now he speaks to God. God speaks a different message to Elijah. 
He gives them a new plan for the future, a new mission. But there's a key part here that you know, kind of gets glossed over sometimes. So in chapter 19, verse 18, he mentions that Elisha thinks that all of Israel is against him, but God points out something very key to him. Verse 18, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. He says, you're not alone, Elijah. You're not alone in this fight. There are at least 7,000 other people in Israel who are true followers of me. We see this practice, we see this spoken again through a different prophet, turning it over to, like flipping forward to the prophet, ah, so after the book of Lamentations, to the prophet Ezekiel, this is in chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. This is when Ezekiel has, uh, ah, so Ezekiel is seeing the judgment, of, the judgment of the wicked as the, as, is, as Judah is coming to a close under the Babylonian invasion. Ezekiel has been set up as a quote-unquote watchman for Israel as they go into exile. And God speaks to him in a, through a vision in chapter 9 where there's going to be a deadly, a judgment of death among Israel. And there's, there's six different figures, six men there with, with a battle axe in hand to carry out that judgment. And says one man among, is among them. He has an, a writer's inkhorn. You know, in other words, he's got, a, he's got, a, got materials to mark things, either on paper or otherwise. And God, and God speaks to him in chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. In other words, kind of like we saw earlier in Genesis, when God marked the righteous and got them out of Sodom, he says, go out, and as we saw again in Exodus, when we saw God mark the people of Israel, those who followed him in the land of Egypt, God speaks to Ezekiel saying, there are those in Jerusalem who are still righteous, those who are not, not rejoicing over these acts of evil, these abominations. They are sighing and crying. They are praying to God, Lord, help us. Like We are fallen people. We have sinned. And God... Before the judgment comes, God is going to make sure that they are marked so that they are not struck down in that judgment. Yes, amen. <laughs> and this, this actually, this reflects on something even in the previous chapter of Revelation. Going to, <laughs> so going to chapter 2, verse 17, in the, in the letters to the seven churches, You've seen, spoken through, the God, John has been instructed to write letters to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and now in this letter to Pergamos, there is a promise that is spoken to those who overcome. He says, quote, in verse 17 of chapter 2, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. In other words, 
you are marked with a new name, a new identity that God has given you in his glory. So it's an any surprise that Satan's trying to counterfeit this. It is this, this mark, this new name, this, this, this differentiation is something that God has used time and again to bless his people and to save them from his judgment. So does any surprise that Satan wants to try his own version of this to try and counterfeit God? And notice that they said before, this will result, like this actually ties back to what we saw with the four horsemen in Revelation chapter 6. We saw the Antichrist sets himself up with the false prophet's help as a false religion, the white horseman. They'll bring about a worldwide war, World War III, symbolized by the red horse. And then the third, interesting enough, will maybe tie into this mark that the Antichrist and the false prophet will use. Because what kind of happens after the war? What, what, what's those, what does the black horse represent? Famine. The shortage of food. Something that often happens after a war. So how will this mark the Antichrist play a role? Well, how did people, whenever a war happened, how did the government make sure everyone got at least, at least, at least enough to get them by? Say again? Well, yeah, they had that little ration books or whatever, but they basically, with the government, took control of the supply of food. They made sure to ration it out according to people. In other words, the government took command of what there was. And that's exactly what will come with the Antichrist and his mark. It will not only help to ration food in the time of shortage, it will give the one world government control over the worldwide market. And interestingly enough, it says that the number of the beast is the number of a man. His number is 666, which, interestingly enough, is still used very, very prevalently amongst, among Satanism today. So it says, well, it says the number of a man. Without going too deep into the numerology, like we see, the number seven is used very often in the, creation, in the works of God. It's a symbol of some people say the image of perfection, but as you saw looking at the, the, the dragon and the, pre, and the beast from the sea, they have seven heads. Does that make them perfect? Well, if you want to say perfectly abominable, then yeah. More prevalently, instead of perfection, the number seven refers to completion. Like we saw the seven days of creation, when God rested it on the seventh, complete. See again, the seven horns and the seven eyes of the Lamb in Revelation chapter, chapter 5, who opened the scroll. The seven seals on the scroll itself. So that number is God's completion. His, that his complete knowledge from beginning to end, his complete power over everything. So if seven is complete, is completion, what do you suppose six represents? Mm-hmm. Exactly. In, in the words of Get Smart, Missed it by that much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a fun, it's funny, but it is true that that's, the number at six, we see that's been man's number. They saw the sixth day of creation was when man was created by God. Every time we try to, every time we try to, to match God's perfection, we always fall short. And so throughout the, time, throughout the scripture, the number six is that is the number of humanity, that we come close, but 
We can never equal God. And that's the same thing with Satan, that no matter how hard he tries, no matter how many people he tries to manipulate, he will always come this, this, and this, just short. So like I said, if the Trinity is, if, if the Trinity is perfection, it's number seven, then as you see, like, actually that goes back to the sevenfold spirit described in Isaiah chapter 11, there's the seven different qualities of the Holy Spirit, then that's exactly, we're going to see Satan fall short. So with his false trinity, the number is six for Satan, six for the Antichrist, and six for the false prophet. Exactly. So even though they try to proclaim themselves as this great, powerful number, they, they, they are, like I said, they're just counterfeit. They cannot compare to the reality of what, who God is. And in the end, that's exactly what we will see in the final judgment when, ironically, it says the false prophet, kind of forecasting ahead, the false prophet and the Antichrist who called down fire from heaven and punished those who did not worship them, in the end, that's exactly where they're going to be. But instead of going, calling that fire down from above, they're going to be surrounded by it. And this, that final judgment will envelop all three members of the false trinity. Like Satan will be bound up for a time, but in the end, he'll be cooking an eternal stew with the false prophet and the Antichrist. <laughs> actually, I borrowed that imagery from, uh, from Keith Green's song, The Dear John Letter to the Devil. It says, I believe in Jesus, and what he said he's going to do, he'll put an apple in your lying mouth and cook you in a sulfur stew. One, ah, one that'll never be through. <laughs> and we can take heart in that, that even though even though there's going to be great, great pain and great darkness to come, in the end, those who start, who led that darkness, will get what's coming to them, and that God will establish His eternal order and His perfect, His true perfection in their place of what, everything that the counterfeits that Satan and his minions tried to throw at us, and we'll be there to see it. That's God's promise to us. So, as we try to draw to a close, may is the can worship team come up, please? So, as we to draw that to a close, let us take heart in that. that. Yes, we do see great darkness coming, but as I said, it's the darkness before the dawn. And that God is going, well, as great as the darkness will be, it'll instantly be gone like that, the, the very second God appears with his light. Let's pray, please. Lord, thank you so much for the message that you've spoken to me today. I pray, Lord, that as it goes out into the among the people who are either here presently or who are listening in on this like later on. I pray, Lord, that it would just plant a seed, that your word would go forth and be planted in the hearts of those who hear it. Take root, bear fruit for your kingdom, and bring forth a harvest for your, of souls for you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that as we continue to, as we just go out from this place today, that you would just continue to work in and through us, Lord. Your spirit would be filling us with your power, your love, and your wisdom, that we would continue to reach out to the fallen world, Lord, and that as we do, they may see, they see your presence in our lives and desire for it to, to, to be in them as well, Lord. Pray, Lord, that as you draw on to you, Lord, that you would just take them and that you would cleanse them, Lord, in their sins, transform them as you have transformed us, Lord. Pray all these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.